Jordan O'Donnell here, and my guest today is Taylor Vashro. Taylor is a registered dietitian and a very close friend of mine. We talked about, gosh, everything involved with health. Uh, diets, obesity, the struggles of losing weight, and mostly about the healthcare system and how we can move to more of a preventative approach instead of a reactive approach. Talking about things like getting young children uh, to have a doctor, a dentist, and a dietitian, so that they can learn about how to take care of themselves before uh, they actually grow up. Taylor's awesome. She's incredibly passionate. She might have shed a tear or two during this podcast just talking about all the things that she loves. And she is an awesome reference and an awesome person to learn from. And I can't wait for you guys to check it out. Taylor Vastro. <laughs> Jordan O'Donnell. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you. How is life? Mm. You caught me on a day where I feel <laughs> extra tired. Yeah. We kind of stayed up, had some crazy conversations and dance TikTok things, you know, right, in right. the late hours and then woke up still at six and worked out. So, yeah. Has that been the regular routine? Or are you only getting six hours a night? Honestly, yeah. Like since Maryland since yeah. we started a week ago at, i think at first i was like yeah 10 30 to 6 normal schedule but that it's just been right. like 12 12 30 <laughs> gets later and later yeah there's just too many enjoyable things and too many fun people to like really justify yeah going to bed early yeah well and also i think because steph the other wellness coordinator and i a lot of our catch-up time is actually at night Mm. laying in bed because you know we share a bed right (laughs) (laughs) close quarters hello talk it really is it's like our little debrief of what you know what dynamics we want to um pay attention to or address or help encourage um how people are doing mentally and physically and just different aspects of the team that have come to light that we feel are important to share with one another so Dang, that's awesome. So I think we'll get back to the road trip maybe at the end a little bit more and um, hear about, you know, what's happening in the, the Taylor Vasher road trip life. Mm-hmm. But uh, just for starters, you know, maybe tell people about your background. Obviously, I'm aware of it. We're close friends, but your background in dietetics and everything. Yeah. So I am a registered dietitian, uh, work currently at a physical therapy clinic doing nutrition counseling and also a pediatric obesity weight management researcher at a university in Richmond. And then I'm also in a process or I've started my own small business. So small business owner. Um, there you go. Yeah. So if you want nutrition counseling, Taylor Bastro, check my website out. But um, yeah, I think just in terms of a little bit of background studied, of course, nutrition, dietetics and undergrad um, had more of an international focus with a lot of malnutrition experience and research for my master's, got my master's in nutrition as well, and then uh, finished out the process of becoming a dietitian, you know, residency, right. boards, etc. Yeah, it's pretty thorough. Yes, yes, yeah. very thorough. Good reason to pursue a dietitian uh, versus a nutritionist. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> but... Yeah. So, and so what are what are your main passions? You know, you mentioned malnutrition, but mm-hmm. what are what are the topics that 
within the dietetic realm that you're most passionate about? Yeah, my passions, I think, have really evolved even in the past year as I've been more in the clinical setting and seen just firsthand what, in my perspective, works and what doesn't work. And I think right now I'm feeling especially passionate about how people can figure out what works best for them in a sustainable, um, joyful way. So it's looking at your nutrition, looking at your exercise, looking at your lifestyle as a whole, and really getting to the why behind it and doing kind of quote unquote, the right things, not because they're the right things for your health, but because you you understand the benefits, you feel the benefits. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not just a diet. And so that's what I feel especially passionate about right now, kind of communicating that and helping people find that mm-hmm. um, sustainable lifestyle for themselves. Right. So how, you know, when, when people talk about weight loss, diet, overall health, going from an unhealthy state to a more healthy lifestyle, mm-hmm. it's usually done pretty begrudgingly. Um, so how do you how do you make people know more interested in that and make it more of a lifestyle where they are actually enjoying it and it's not just laborious the entire time yeah honestly that's that's a really good question and that's something I think as a dietitian I mean so much of my job is really working with people in that way it's more of the how can we evoke that intrinsic motivation from within you so that you make those changes and you're not just doing it because your dietitian told you so or your personal mm-hmm. trainer told you so. Um, and I think that's why I come back to this, this lifestyle approach. I don't know when and where diets really started, but right. literally everyone and their mom has started a diet on Monday. Um, my mom just called me yesterday and was like, your dad and I <laughs> are starting a diet. Like, yeah. yesterday, it was yesterday. Started a diet on Monday. And I think the intention is beautiful, right? Like, right. they want to be healthy. But usually diets are motivation-based. And it's short-term and it's unsustainable. And so I think, kind of to answer your question, how do we change people's perspectives so it's not a, like, ugh, I have to I have to start restricting my food like on Monday. I have to make myself go walk and do these things or exercise in some way. Um, I think a lot of times it involves a rock bottom that mm-hmm. people kind of have to hit a low point in their a wake up call in their health um, and then decide that it's worth it to do something. But that's where we we reach the fork in the road. And a lot of times that's where people are like, okay, cool. Let me Google what's working right now. Oh, keto. Oh, you know, intermittent fasting. Like that's, that's the diet that my friend's sister lost a lot of weight with. So I'm going to do that starting on Monday because I've hit this rock bottom. And that's where I think the world needs to get that wake up call, that rock bottom. But instead think about, okay, what are some some lifestyle changes I can make that are going to stick with me in a year, in two years, in five years, in 10 years. So you're not 60 restarting a diet on Monday. Hmm. Right. Because it can, it can just be undulation mountains and, and valleys for, for years. Yeah. Yeah. And the research shows that 95% of people end up losing weight and then gaining that back and more. Mm. And then once again, try to lose weight, gain that back and more. And it's this up and down cycle, which is actually worse for your body, worse for your heart, your cardiovascular system, et cetera, in the long run. Right. Right. What do you, what do you think causes that? Mm-hmm. Do you think, you think there's sugar and fat addictions and, and, and that plays a part or mm. 
what do you what do you think is the main motivator yeah that's a really good question and this is why i think psychology and nutrition are so Mm. intertwined and i'm also getting more and more into psychology right now but once again i think it comes back to that fork in the road and most people thinking that unless i cut out everything that's tasty and good i won't lose weight like I have to do this ABC plan like unless I'm hungry or unless I feel like I'm I'm feeling the pain (laughs) then it won't work if I'm not suffering this is not gonna happen exactly and from I think there's a growing field in the nutrition the clinical health world where everyone's realizing no (laughs) like that's actually not true what's going to last you and serve you in the long run is making those small changes that gradually increase and serve you. So for example, let's say Jordan, you wanted to lose weight and you came up to me. I, as a dietitian would want to see where you're at and where, you know, we could kind of draw a contrast like, okay, this is what you're currently doing. And this is maybe what you think like is the healthiest eating and diet slash physical activity. Right? So we have these kind of two different lives, draw the discrepancy. And instead of you jumping from A to Z, it's like, okay, what's point B? Like what's that little step in the right direction? Yeah. Yeah, And so I think when people get into this restrictive mindset, like you're saying, it's almost an addiction. It, it creates that mindset that it is like an addiction because you're telling yourself you can't have it. That's when people, especially women become hyper-focused on highly palatable carbs and sweets and feel like, oh, I just can't have it in the house, which is fair, right? Because you've had that experience where you all of a sudden you're like, okay, well, I'll just have cookies for this event in the house or whatever. And then they like lose control and eat them all. They don't have the willpower. Mm. And that's bogus. (laughs) What really would be beneficial is if they have the cookies in the house all the time they you don't have this idealized like putting them on the pedestal they're only for special occasions you can have them every now and then maybe like once every few days or once a week or whatever you forget about them Mm -hmm. you don't end up eating five when you eat them you have like one because that's okay and you know you could have more if you want it or not if you don't that is what allows for people to not overeat to not have this kind of addictive relationship where they feel like it's all or nothing black and white Mm mm-hmm do you think that perhaps the urge is just too overwhelming? This is this is probably a hyperbolic contrast, but to say you probably wouldn't tell a crack addict to have crack in their house, mm-hmm. that sort of thing. Is it do you think that the pull of quick carbohydrates and other sorts of weight gaining foods is strong enough that people quite literally can't control themselves? Yes, if you are actively restricting yourself. Mm. If you're at a calorie deficit, if you're telling yourself all day, no, 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 then it does become overwhelming. I have a book right up there on the shelf about intuitive eating. And so many people, once they nourish their body well, giving themselves adequate calories, adequate nutrients, find this drastic change in that. They're like, wow, I'm not chomping at the bit to eat like a cookie all day I haven't thought about it I don't really care anymore I don't think it's the food that's necessarily addictive but it's the restriction that causes this there is a study um, where they took it's like the Minnesota study like it's kind of a hallmark study where they took these guys and they put them in like a highly restrictive diet made them lose all this weight and they became like obsessive over food like so many of them 
like got really into like cooking and like cookbooks or just kind of this almost in my mind I'm like yeah that's a lot of women you know and we love food and cooking and men do too for a variety of reasons it's awesome like I love good food but there becomes almost this obsessive nature that is in this perspective it's it's a direct response to that restriction Mm -hmm. um so I would almost say like if you are filling yourself up with good nutrients with fruits and vegetables and whole grains and lean meats and you allow yourself to have those like indulgence items or whatever it is for you then you know that your body prefers those healthy foods you gravitate towards that 90 percent of the day right and and i think the thing too is that you know you're sort of you're it's a scale which you've kind of already mentioned and you know maybe somebody is starting at a negative 10 and that is i despise working out i don't want to eat healthy my body actually needs these unhealthy things or it will feel terrible mm-hmm. and you slowly start to make that transition where you get back to zero and then when you're at one two three you know once you get to the point of five and six if you eat a cookie you feel way worse yeah than than you used to right. and then you know you get to eight and nine you're now at a point where if you don't work out that day you actually don't feel well um so h- how how do you kind of in your experience you, you know make that transition from kind of a negative 10 and just incrementally work your way up to the the positive 10. Yeah, that is, that is my job. Literally. It's just walking alongside creating that discrepancy. Like I said earlier, and you're saying kind of the scale and trying to help people think through, okay, what is like realistic for you? And people are like, okay, every day this next week, I'm going to have oatmeal for breakfast or what, you know, something. And I say, well, on a scale of one to 10, like how realistic does that feel? And they're like, Oh, like a seven. I think I can do it. And I'm like, well, what would make it a 10? Hmm. And they say, you know, I think it would be a 10 if I did oatmeal, like five days a week. Mm-hmm. I'm like, Shh, great, let's do that. Like start where you are confident and right. where it feels realistic. You hate exercise, but you know, you don't mind walking for five minutes a day. Great. Let's start there. Like everyone has a starting point. Right. Right. And, you know, you mentioned the psychology of it. How how much do you think that plays? I mean, are you working in a psychological realm to increase self-discipline mm. and to increase good self-talk? So the term for that is actually self-efficacy. Okay. It's just like belief in your ability right. to make these changes and, and successfully do it. And I think, once again, going back to this yo-yo dieting where people are successful and they lose weight but then they gain it all back and then they're upset and they feel distraught like I can't do this I've done this five times over and over I don't really know what to do but now I'm even more like heavier than I was ever in the beginning it's coming alongside that person seeing where they're at and getting them to make those realistic goals so that they can simultaneously build that self-efficacy and make changes and see progress and it's just this beautiful positive snowball that is once again sustainable it's not just this drastic change diet that lasts for three months and then kind of continues in this cycle it's not restrictive it's coming back to like what is honoring to your body Hmm. what feels better i know sometimes like people are like oh i don't well it doesn't feel good to work out or whatever but how do you feel after how does it feel when you work out for a week or two weeks versus staying inside um, and not moving at all. So I think it's, it's, it is trying to challenge and I would say it's less of the self-discipline and more of that evoking that internal motivation. Encouragement. Yes. Yes. 
So have you, in your dietetic experience, have you had a handful of clients uh, that you've really been encouraged by that have, you know, sort of made these mm. these gradual transitions and, and been able to have lifestyle change? 100%. And those are, that is what I walk away from the appointment or close my laptop with COVID and all the virtual appointments. And I feel so thrilled and so I'm you know I, I get excited and my eyes start to like water <laughs> I just I, lo I mean that is why I do my job yeah like that is the most gratifying experience for me because they feel so happy right. and they feel like it wasn't possible everyone tells me oh nutrition I know what to do I just don't do it <laughs> and I part of me is like well you know you you actually probably don't know <laughs> a lot of things but anyways, uh, <laughs> also it's the, yeah, like I just don't do it. Okay. Well, why, if you, if you know what to do, then why are you not quote, just doing it? And that's the huge help of having someone walk alongside you and have that experience. And then I just feel like over the moon when someone sees that in themselves and kind of gets that builds the self-efficacy. Right. I mean, it's, it's literally a completely new life. Mm, like yeah. the world the world has opened up so many more possibilities to you yeah mm, yeah and i think there's also a movement in the nutrition world focusing on health at every size and i love it i love it so much because it's not saying like yeah okay cool like you're normal weight overweight obese it doesn't matter just continue on it's saying hey you are normal weight overweight obese according to bmi and f and you should focus on being healthy at your current size. And if you are focusing on giving yourself good nutrition and honoring your body that way, and you start to incorporate joyful movement and physical activity, kind of the recommended amounts for adults, you will reap the benefits immediately and in the long run, regardless of what your BMI is, mm. which is so powerful and so encouraging, I think, because there is this stigma of like, well, I'm I am overweight or obese. I, I don't want to go to the gym. I don't want to be seen kind of like in an unhealthy state. And there's now so much research to say you can be extremely healthy at that higher BMI, even more healthier, quote unquote, than someone at a lower BMI who's eating crap, physically inactive, you know, at like a smaller weight, but right. not treating their body well. Is BMI still a credible stat? I just remember when I was younger, BMI was seen, I mean, it didn't take into account body fat percentage and other yeah. things like that. Is is that still yeah. well used? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you can probably hear it in my voice. No, um, I think BMI... We all like to dump on it, myself included, because it is frustrating, right? If you're a muscular person, you're probably overweight. Right. If you are, let's say in my, what I was saying, if you are technically overweight, but you are, um, or obese, but you are active and healthy, like it doesn't really tell you the health status of your, of the individual, but and, and it's based off of some random, it was like a statistician who made it based off of men, like white men in, mm. in their bodies. So it's kind of this, do we have a better <laughs> like me measurement or marker that we could make? Like, could we not create something better? Um, but I will say, however, in the clinical setting, in the hospital, like there are so many, it's almost just a really easy um, number to look at to, to assess 
part of what's going on with a patient. Um, I think in terms of data, like epidemiological research, it helps to categorize people in some way, uh, just yeah. for the sake of numbers and objectively looking at, okay, there's a correlation between, you know, BMI and this, but even that, that's where it gets funky. Cause you're like, well, is the BMI category that you're putting everyone in really reflect, like, what are you looking mm -hmm. at then? Honestly, I'm not a huge fan of BMI, but I do understand from a clinical perspective why we continue to use it. And I think more progressive doctors, physicians, dietitians, et cetera, will openly admit in a one-on-one -on -one setting, like, yeah, not a great marker mm. of, or to be reflective of your health. Uh, let's look at your blood pressure. Let's look at your lipids. Let's look at if you can run a mile, you mm. know, or, you know, I don't know. Maybe that's in our future, <laughs> but yeah, it, it's not, not the best. <laughs> right. Right. It, it certainly seems like that we could, we could test more things for sure. Mm -hmm. And I always think of, you know, an NFL running back, maybe Maurice Jones drew, he used to play for the mm -hmm. Jacksonville Jaguars guy was, I don't know, five, eight, maybe, and probably two twenty, two thirty, And he was an absolute monster. I mean, the guy probably had less than 8% body fat, mm -hmm. but According to BMI, he was morbidly obese. Yeah. Uh, and then, you know, kind of what you were saying, the inverse of that is somebody could have high BMI but could have incredibly strong cardiovascular health. Yeah. You know, maybe their outsides look thicker, but their insides are healthier than a thin person who thinks, according to BMI, that they're perfectly healthy. 100%. Yeah. I mean, you mentioned earlier, like, gut microbiome. That could be totally, you know, if, as an example – a reflection of health that we can't see um, if someone smokes or doesn't smoke hmm. someone's mental health like there are so many aspects of health and wellness that are internal kind of hit into the eye so it is a shame that we are very quick to judge i think the bigger bodies mm -hmm. in this world so on a macro level what is your vision for a future dietetics and healthcare system what what could better serve people mm -hmm. you know and to actually make them be more healthy. Uh, what are sort of the, the negatives of our current system and what could be improved upon? Yeah, yeah, that's a great question. So it's interesting, I, I was reading a research study the other day and it was saying that our life expectancy, right, is slowly or is gradually increasing. So it's like every year, 2019, 2020, you can add on like two months of the life expectancy of men in France or, you know, whatever, it's different numbers, different places, just gradually increasing life expectancy. But the years of basically healthy years of life, like mm. the years that you're actually healthy without any chronic disease are decreasing. Mm. So it's just preservation. Right. Right. And at that, like preservation in an unhealthy <laughs> state, yeah. uh, extending the years that maybe you don't want to extend, um, but I think to answer your question, it to me that says, how can we help individuals before they get to the place where they're not in their healthy years? You know, mm. when then all of a sudden they've been diagnosed with type 2 diabetes or hypertension and are now relying on meds. But what can we do to support people before they get to the heart attack, before they get to the diagnoses or, you know, the rock bottom? And so in like a dreamer state, I've, yeah. I know we've talked about this uh, a while ago, but when I started in nutrition and dietetics, I was like, man, huh, <laughs> 
this is a lot of really interesting information. And, and once again, people say like, oh, I know what to do. I just don't do it. And my challenge to that is like, where are you getting your information from? Is it from BuzzFeed's like most recent article or health like Java line, whatever online that you Google? Is it from Twitter, or Facebook, your aunt's selling you some supplement, which I mean, well-intentioned aunt, you know, we all have one, <laughs> but my, my thing there is what if we had access to quality nutrition information from a young age, such as a dietitian, like a dentist, you know, what mm -hmm. if kids kind of from three or whatever started meeting with a dietitian, maybe once a year or twice a year, just as a check-in, a friendly conversation, an encouragement, um, and I think as the field progresses, once again, in this kind of health at every size focus, it's, it's the opportunity to really instill why it is so important to eat your fruits and vegetables and focus on balance and joyful movement and kind of all of these things that if you incorporate into your life from a young age, you're really setting yourself up for success mm. down the road. I was reading a different study and it said something to the effect of there are these four kind of lifestyle things that you can do uh, to prevent, you know, chronic diseases. And it's it's like a healthy diet with high fruits and vegetables, whole grains, physical activity of over. Um, it was like 350 minutes a week, not smoking. And gosh, I forgot. What was the last one? Hold He's on. got the notes. I, I did. I took notes. And just maintaining going to BMI, maintaining a BMI under 30. That's was one of the markers that they use, but you had these four kind of lifestyle things. If you had one of them, you had a 50% reduced risk of getting a chronic disease later in life. Wow. If you did all four, you had a 93% reduced risk. Wow. Right. Yeah. Isn't that, and that is where I'm like, guys, let's tell everyone. <laughs> I mean, that was pretty straightforward, too. I mean, that, I, mean, I guess to some people that might be rocket science, but I mean, that that list seems like it was pretty easily accomplished. Sure. And there's, you know, correlation doesn't prove causation. The people who can check off all four, you know, there are other factors in their life that maybe are conducive to health that some, you know, socioeconomic status, availability, food mm. access, like there are other components of that. But all of that is to say, let's create a system that is preventing insurance companies paying mm -hmm. out the wazoo for your double bypass, heart surgery, gastric surgery. You know, there are a variety of different surgeries that could list off that could be avoided, that could save millions if we had a dietitian meeting with every American from a young age and just really encouraging and teaching in simple ways and holding people accountable. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that it really is a bonkers idea that we go to the dentist when we're young, usually twice a year mm -hmm. to take care of our teeth, but we have nothing to take care of the rest of our body, really. I mean, we go, I obviously go to a doctor and you yeah. do your, you do your checkup and, th and they, they check things for the most part, but that's mostly checking vital signs mm -hmm. and not proactively teaching about, okay, well, how do you keep these vital signs in, in a good spot and, and not have them diminish drastically? Right. Yeah, doctors have so much on their plates and are asking you everything from do you wear your helmet to, uh, you know, like, how's your 
TV time, yeah, you know, all right. of the things and looking at your weight. And I, in a clinical setting, I have some experience working with overweight peds and teens. And by the time we work with them, they're usually above the 99th percentile. Mm. You know, it's usually responsive. Um, and, uh, you know, type 2 diabetes, it's like 20. No, it's increasing. There's, I forgot the number, but it's just, it's increasing in our youth. 20% of kids 12 to 19 are of type two. No, are obese. Oh. And it's just, it's just to say that maybe like you said, if <laughs> it's crazy that we focus on kind of our teeth as an example, which I love you dentists. Like you, right. you're great people. <laughs> I, I hate them. The, that's the worst <laughs> place ever. The smell in there. <laughs> yeah. You walk in and it just reminds me of Novocaine and pain. Mm. I got a lot of cavities when I was a kid. Yeah. yeah. Anyway. Well, your dietitian could have helped you with that too. <laughs> I know, right? Yeah. <laughs> Grandma gave me too much candy. <laughs> <laughs> so the idea that uh, what 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 would that look like? You know, if, if you had the child walk in mm -hmm. and they were completely healthy mm -hmm. and showed no signs of pre obesity, mm -hmm. what would you what would you be teaching them? Um, the kind of basics. I mean, the pure basics of how nutrition and what you eat literally builds your body, like mm. is used, broken down and turned over into the different parts of your cells and your eyeballs, you know, different kind of things like that. Um, I think so just giving them the basic science uh, in an encouragement or in a motivational way so that when they're older, it's not like, it, there's not a disconnect. I think there's just this really big disconnect right now of like, yeah, I can drink 48 ounces of Mountain Dew every day. And that's no repercussion. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Which I mean, and if you sit down and look someone in the face, they're going to tell you like, oh, yeah, I know this isn't the best for me. And my hope is that maybe from a young age, not to demonize soda, but like as an example, if you gave this information and kind of encouraged them, even if they're already healthy to, I guess, like do all that they can to support their health and the reason why, then maybe they would still enjoy soda, but it would be in moderation or right. there's kind of more of a reason behind it rather than digging yourself into the hole and thinking like, oh yeah, a Pop-Tart and a soda after school is my best option. A dietitian could really easy, easily come alongside and say, well, you know, that actually doesn't have a lot of protein in that. And I know you play football and so you might benefit from throwing in some protein to that snack. Do you know what sources of protein are? Mm. All the kids would say no. <laughs> <laughs> and then you provide the little education. Six months later, check in on that again. And I mean, I just, I, it could be so many different things mm. that would really, I think, set someone up. And then for adults too, continuing this maybe annually for mm. adults uh, kind of down the road as a part of their health treatment their health care right their overall yeah dentist doctor dietitian as well the three d's yeah personal trainer add that in there yeah and i think the beauty of that too is that it really i think knowledge motivates especially if you know if you put in that context of hey if if you want to be the best football player out there mm -hmm. you know stop eating mcdonald's and drinking mountain dew and start to eat lean chicken and mm -hmm. toss in some veggies and mm -hmm. you will see better performance. I mean, I remember when I was young, I was probably in seventh or eighth grade. 
my mom was pretty health conscious and she came home one time and I was eating some random thing and she looked at the ingredients and there was partially hydrogenated oil in there. Mm-hmm. And I obviously, she, she comes to me and says, you know, this is like one DNA molecule away from plastic and, you know, clogs up your arteries, whatever, you know, all this sort of stuff. I think I literally ran like five miles a day and ate nothing but lettuce for like, for like, oh a, my goodness. For like a week. The and scare tactic. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. But you know, we obviously don't want that, but I think young people are, I think young people are a lot smarter than people give them credit For and sure. they, they will be motivated to eat healthy. And it was the scare tactic that my mother used, but I, to this day, always look for hydrogenated oil on the labels mm-hmm. and try to stay away from it as much as possible. Mm-hmm. And I, I, yeah, I, I think there would be a ton of kids that would be really interested in learning about how to make themselves better i mean everybody's always trying to make themselves better in in every way and if if you can show them another way to do that with their health they would probably love it right well and research shows that kids are more adaptable more able to lose weight if they already are in the kind of overweight obese category to lose it and maintain that weight loss whereas adults it's a lot harder to do that and a lot less, as we've already said, effective in kind of the long term um, with with the diets and the yo-yo dieting and the kind of the drastic measures. And so thinking through, I mean, kids are the future. Like if we mm. are seeing these increased rates of chronic diseases going up and up every year and decreased kind of quality of life across the board, then it needs to start with the kids. Right. It, it needs to be a priority. And part of that also is roping in the parents mm-hmm. because I mean, until a kid is like a teenager, they're really not autonomous. They're just eating whatever is, is on the table. Right. And so, and that is what we do when working in the hospital or in outpatient settings with overweight, obese teens or kids. But, um, I I think, as I just said, kids are pretty autonomous and almost they want to be able to to decide what they're eating um, as they age. And so giving them that baseline education and that motivation and then kind of almost that inception, right? (laughs) Like planting the seed and letting them become a a teenager, 13, like just go in there and like grab their bag of carrots, like (laughs) angsty. (laughs) They're like going up to my room. (laughs) to heck with you and your mcdonald's yeah like yeah honestly they could teach their parents um, and that happens a lot and and other types of realms for sure yeah so so what are the the barriers to entry uh, obviously systematic change mm-hmm. of this mass scale is is difficult but it all starts with an idea mm. what are the what are the barriers to entry of creating something like that where diet dietitian is is implemented in, in the youth I mean, it really is like a public policy slash insurance issue. Mm. I constantly get emails from dietitians, especially during COVID, of, hey, sign this petition, email your local legislature. Yeah, thank you. (laughs) (laughs) Um, (laughs) To ask for our names are positioned to be on the on the lineup or to be used to treat xyz disease to get insurance to cover that um to be kind of a part of that team and it's funny because i think we read the research all the time that is in the nutrition world and um, nutrition research is 
sometimes a little back and forth. People are like, I don't know, are eggs okay or are they not okay? I'm not yeah. sure. But one thing that is very consistent across nutrition research is the power of nutrition. Mm. I mean, across the board, there are infinite studies, all of them, basically, to say, hey, if you eat fruits and vegetables and whole grains and lean proteins, da, 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 you have better health outcomes. You have better quality of life. You have better um, prevention of chronic diseases, all of that. And so I guess we see the reason for it. It feels like so obvious. Um, and so it, I think it starts with the idea and it moves into, okay, let's convince the people who maybe aren't seeing those research studies, that data, um, and get the policy side of it to back up the, essentially it comes down to the funding and mm. the insurance companies to say, yeah, we want you on this team. It would be so cool if in 20 years, 50 years or whatever, people are like, oh yeah, of course. Like I saw my dietitian Taylor, we're best friends <laughs> and I can't Got wait her to on speed dial. Yeah. 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 And then if there's something more specialized or, you know, you really want to work intensely with a dietitian for a season, you still have the private practice dietitians. You still have the clinical dietitians in the hospital treating people with feeding tubes and, um, you know, diabetes management, et cetera. But this is that public health preventative health measure. That's just not a part of our system right now. So, are there ripples in the water or is this are there things coming up the line or are other people having these conversations or is this this just in your head um <laughs> this imaginary both. world in yeah your head. i was trying to see if there are other countries that do this and i think almost culturally there are um mm, japan or, or places yeah exactly and i think what that what i found is um focusing other countries that have stronger programs that focus on maternal and child nutrition and health end up having spending less on healthcare in the long run, um, have better outcomes. And it's once again, it's that focus on the mother when she's taking like growing the child and taking care of the child. And then the kids when they're in that really malleable young age, um, yeah, I looked at like Japan and probably Scandinavian country and right. like Italy and Norway and different. I mean, the, it just gets tricky because they're different healthcare systems, different governments, uh, different voices in the crowd expressing where they think that funding should go. So in America has the dilemma of a lot of corporate capitalistic fast food chains and mm. other industries that some of those other countries don't exactly have sure and as horrible as it is there are, is a lot of money invested in people being unhealthy you said it perfectly and those investments and organizations are tend to be loud voices mm. versus like the little dietitians who are you know <laughs> running up the, <laughs> the steps of the capitol building <laughs> trying to get us on the on the table but yeah. it yeah. does seem like though that there is there's a grassroots movement occurring i think a lot you know there, there are the stats that more people are becoming obese and that sort of thing but i think at least with people i know and i think a lot of other people know 
there is there's definitely a movement of just being overall health conscious mm-hmm. and, and trying trying to improve in, in all capacities. Yeah, you know, it's funny. It kind of reminds me of our relationship with smoking mm-hmm. as a culture because you there's a lot of research in the nutrition world about marketing towards children, marketing towards adults and how kind of unethical it is to have all of this marketing geared towards children to get them to go to these fast food restaurants to get the toy and to you know do what the kids are doing or whatever and and then they're hooked on the highly palatable meal that's easy and convenient for mom and dad as well like a whole family's down but there's just a lot of research in the in this marketing realm of how that marketing affects kids specifically and it that's why i'm thinking it reminds me of like smoking because right. we look at the marketing back in the day and it's like yeah you want to be cool and sexy and like james dean yes <laughs> get a motorcycle and a leather jacket and a cigarette and you're the coolest guy on earth exactly and nowadays we all know smoking's not cool yeah. <laughs> uh, it still looks kind of cool yeah debatable <laughs> but you know what i mean like the the cultural appreciation or um posture towards smoking for example has totally shifted mm-hmm. uh, yeah, over completely. the past 50 years and i am hoping and thinking maybe our posture towards marketing with fast food um specifically towards kids can kind of be the same way and at least i think that would force and it, it has forced these fast food um monopolies to provide some healthier alternatives so mm-hmm. at least as a dietitian i can say yeah your family you guys always go to mcdonald's or chick-fil-a or whatever on a monday night because you have soccer practice cool let's look at some ways to make that meal slightly more nourishing mm-hmm. to give you a little bit more nutrients uh, and a little bit less trans fat or saturated fat you know from say like a fried product yeah yeah. i guess i think mcdonald's salads and everything are still still pretty terrible or just slightly better yeah i mean i it depends on what you're what you're trying to do and what you're looking for i would say uh that's you know you're not wrong that mcdonald's salads tend to be like heavy loaded with other things to make them yummy Mm -hmm. but i think people can easily look at that and be like well this salad is 500 calories i might as well eat a burger instead and i would say well you know what what how is the burger going to affect your body versus the salad and yeah some salads can be really high in fat and sugar and different things because of the dressing or because of the fried chicken tenders that are on top but uh, maybe the salad is still going to give you more nutrients um, micronutrients macronutrients etc versus the burger in this example right right awesome this has been incredibly insightful so we are obviously on a bus right now Mm. road tripping around america and you are the team's dietitian Mm -hmm. so what is that what has that experience been like to have 18 (laughs) college age people (laughs) rolling around america (laughs) with uh on very odd schedules trying to keep them nourished exhausting (laughs) my mom's like she's like taylor really like 18 people like (laughs) every meal and i'm like no mom it's not every meal and it's fine like i like it we like it uh my co you know wellness 
guru stuff we've been really enjoying the process and and we feel um like i i couldn't pick a better job if I, to be a mm. part of this bus team this tour and to do anything else would be you know equally rewarding for the trip purpose but in terms of my own personal professional satisfaction i love it um we it's been challenging in the sense that we have one bus and two campers the campers have like tiny mini fridges one stove between the two of them and two stove tops uh and the bus is like a mini fridge basically in a in a freezer chest freezer yeah so it it is a little bit tricky with how are we going to get all this food to fit how do we cook for basically 20 people um and we have like five vegetarians two vegans one guy who's allergic to eggs um dairy-free people out the wazoo you know so accommodating all those needs and intolerances that's where i feel almost like i'm in the zone you know (laughs) like (laughs) this is what i've been training for (laughs) um and it's fun yeah it's it's cool when we make a really good meal and people come up afterwards and they're like dang that nourish bowl hit the spot yeah and filled me up i was one of them who said that yeah Yeah. and that's the thing is that that as an example was a quality nutrient dense meal right chicken vegetables sweet potato brown rice salad greens some small dressing yeah Yeah. feta like mm. (laughs) yeah Uh, yeah we need to eat that again (laughs) Um, making me hungry uh yeah, it, it's it's been awesome to see see you guys perform and, and everything you guys have been doing. I mean, I think everybody has their work cut out for them, but mm-hmm. you guys definitely do, and uh, I think everybody really appreciates it. So we got uh got a lot more to go on this road trip. Um, I'm excited to see what other meals you guys come up with. Yeah, we've got a few creative ones. They'll either be regular awesome meals or total flops. <laughs> <so>. <laughs> I'm sure they'll be incredible. Mm, thanks. All right, Taylor Bastro, any uh, final words? On- I mean, I would just say to anyone who is listening to this who maybe feels like they're at a, a starting place in that journey that we talked about in the beginning or they're maybe they just hit rock bottom during COVID, that that is a beautiful place to be you know, to just kind of accept where you're at, where you're starting at and try to take small steps to once again, to honor your body and your mind, um, to nourish yourself, to have joyful movement, uh, that that is, you're worth it. You're worth treating yourself well with good nutrients and and movement. So couldn't be said better. Taylor Vastro. Thank you. Hope you guys enjoyed the podcast. Taylor Vastro is a phenomenal human being, and I love chatting with her and love hanging out with her. We are headed to Flagstaff, Arizona on the Zoom Garden promotion tour, and after that, headed up to Zion, Reno, and then up the West Coast to Eugene, Portland, Spokane. Check us out. Follow us on all those social media things, and look forward to having you for the next podcast. Thanks, Peter.